0: You have accessed entry 744.LK1214, certificate number 22481, The Ma Bell Breakup.
1: Now, uh, futurelings listening to the program are going to be thinking of Omnibus as a giant multi-headed Hydra corporation.
0: Conglomerate spanning the globe. Because as we get,
1: uh, as we get closer and closer to being America's favorite podcast, of course, we're going to start using that, le- leveraging that um, opportunity to start buying up other podcasts and either crushing them or assimilating them into the, the
0: larger Omnibus rubric it's going to be hard for them to imagine a time when it was just like you and I sitting at a table, Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Yep. Scrappy little company doing a podcast in our
1: garage. They're going to be, um, they're going to be waving their tendrils, uh, singing the omnibus theme and, uh, and every morning at the start of work, (laughs) that's right. It's
0: compulsory. (laughs) Everybody salute, everybody salute the giant holograms of Ken and John. (laughs) But, uh, I mean,
1: and And because of who we are and and our governing life philosophies, of course one of the things that's going to promote the 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 gradual consolidation of all podcasts into the omnibus project is is it compatible with Marxism is that compatible with Marxism
0: and it is actually yeah um, yeah there should be a centralized planned economy podcast economy mm-hmm. uh-huh. and it should be centralized under us and planned <laughs> by us and we should say um no the uh The economy cannot support another true crime podcast this year. Nope. Um, We'll send you to the Gulag.
1: Yeah, we will let you know what true crime podcasts you can listen to. But this is a topic that's really uh, in the moment, uh, our moment here in late 2021. 2021, yeah, that's right. That's the year we're in. When will this episode air? Quite a bit later, toward the end of
0: 2021. Uh, We're only about a month ahead. End of November. This is a a special Thanksgiving uh, entry. Oh, great.
1: It's Black Friday. Uh, Another day absolutely compatible with Marxism.
0: Wait, this might actually air on—am I realizing for the first time this will, in fact, air on Thanksgiving? Air on Thanksgiving. This is a lot of suspense for um, listeners who are probably presumably aware of whether or not it is Thanksgiving (laughs) or no. Happy American Thanksgiving to all of our listeners around the world. To all who celebrate To Canadians who have their Thanksgiving in October, not you. Um but there's been a lot of talk of monopoly
1: in America today in the tech world, and I think globally the recognition that the that the internet, which has become a new and separate planet upon which we live. A cyber planet, uh, if you will. A cyber planet. The internet, as it increasingly takes over reality, is controlled by a very few, or rather, controlled, scare quotes, uh, by a very few extremely large companies that uh, that seek to increase their market share and eliminate competition in the true spirit of capitalism.
0: By the way, the uh, growing concern about monopoly, not just limited to tech, hmm. I read this morning, you know who's in trouble again under monopolistic grounds? Hitler. Yes. Uh-huh. No. Uh, let's see. The, the Hitler of box stores. I'm talking about Staples. Oh, no. It's got to be... For years, Staples has been trying to buy Office Depot and Office Max oh. because then their empire will be... To corner the office. Unconquerable. Right. Who? Where are you going to get Staples? Where are you going to get post-its and... Uh, <laughs> yeah, and reams and, and, of paper. And wheeled chairs. You will have only one choice, and that will be at Staples Depot Max. And, um, and this is really happening. Regulators keep shutting them down. Huh. They have they have been unable to, uh, to absorb Office Depot and Office Max into their grasp. So, you know, monopolizing is still very much a live issue even in retail today.
1: Well, it's interesting over the course of the 20th century and now into the 21st century, the question of monopoly and the role it plays in global capitalism ebbs and flows and opinions change. It's still, it was and remains a very controversial topic and it doesn't, it sometimes uh, falls according to
0: a liberal conservative divide, but there are two generally conservatives being pro monopoly because the free market can decide sometimes, but there's a competing a conservative argument against monopoly what's the is it a populist argument what, what's the argument to be made there?
1: yeah it is there's a there the the two schools of thought are kind of broadly that um the you know the leftist thought is that is this compatible with Marxism is it compatible with Marxism absolutely <laughs> it, it, it you know it's much more. Um, in a, in the true leftist tradition, more about civilization maintaining a culture of not just innovation but equality, income, um, like equality or relativity.
0: What's better for the community in general? That's is right. it better for the nation to, have, to one, have one office supply store and and all
1: of this within um, within the context of capitalism? Right? There's no argument. Against monopoly, that's really coming from like a strictly Marxist school, because I think both the liberal and conservative um, capitalist arguments are that planned economies and fascist economies are uh, intrinsically right. monopolistic. Right. This is
0: only an issue in the free market.
1: Right. Right. And and it it for a lot of the twentieth century, um, this was. Antitrust legislation was was um, pro capitalist and considered an antidote to fascistic or or socialistic planned economies.
0: We're helping the little guy because the little guy That's may right. someday own a billion dollar uh, office supply chain, <laughs> and and, and will need to be taken care of. But
1: during you know during that period in the first half of the twentieth century, where where fascism was ascendant, um. There, there was this was an argument for the American system and the you know the kind of American slash UK system of capitalism that antitrust legislation was even possible, right? That controlling capitalism was was um, was part of the
0: engine of freedom, or or vice versa. And in that time period, associated with Republican politicians like Theodore Roosevelt. So the Republican antitrust uh
1: philosophy often hues like you were saying to a more populist argument that what is best for the consumer is uh, is maybe the highest order of concern we're not trying to create a a whole world where capitalism is regulated in order to create uh, a society where in where where uh income and wealth is distributed, we're just trying to regulate business in order to benefit the little guy. What keeps prices the lowest? What keeps innovation happening? So both, both schools of thought, um, have an argument that is antitrust, but as, as you, as you kind of rightly guessed,
0: in recent times in the in the third half of the 20th century the relationship of the republican party to corporate interests is very different today than it was in the 1890s when john sherman wrote his antitrust act right? yeah and that and a lot of that is a result
1: of the chicago school of economics which promoted starting in the late 60s a very the well laissez-faire economics which was adopted wholeheartedly by the reagan administration and promoted uh, by kind of sweet, not only sweeping legislation, but, uh, but a kind of mandate to the courts, an overall American philosophy that capitalism was
0: self-regulating. That this, is, the, this is what makes us great. Yeah. The we should market, be proud of our big, strong mega companies.
1: Not just that, but that the big, strong mega companies are going to foster competition because there's always going to be a little guy that's got a better way. And how exciting is that? Um. You know, and I think uh, that hasn't really been borne out.
0: Well, it seems blind. It seems blind to the actual economic concerns that led to trust busting in the 19th century.
1: And this is why the the fashion of antitrust legislation has ebbed and flowed over time, because there have been many periods of in United States history where the idea that a single company would control a whole broad sector of the economy seemed like really the most efficient way to do it. I mean, during World War II and the and the lead up to it, I mean, Roosevelt was trying to uh stimulate the economy and was not really interested in prosecuting trusts. Um he, you know, he wanted he w- you know, the New Deal was trying to just get the uh the economy going, right? And then there are other times when I guess
0: logistically it's easier to throw money at a guy named Rockefeller than to than to do yeah, what are we? I Fifty thousand small business grants. There's no, there's no
1: capital that we can even seed small. I mean, where these guys are in soup lines. How are we gonna? How are we gonna seed their little machine shops? And then other times when activism uh, in economics becomes really a, a movement, and it is very related to, although not, there's not a correlation as much as you might think. But uh, in terms of, like, time periods, there's not— um, as, to,
0: as to which the—as to whether the country is leaning left or right in general?
1: Yeah. In general, during liberal times, there's not more of a focus on antitrust legislation compared to conservative times. Again, because there's a kind of um, schizophrenia in the in the various philosophies. I mean, Republicans traditionally have have been just as hostile to— uh, to mega corpse for other reasons. But in the, so a, as you said, the Sherman Antitrust Act in the late 1800s was an attempt to regulate capitalism that, that we've talked about several times on the show. The 18th century capitalism often ran amuck, and a lot of the robber barons the captains of industry of the time they literally had robber in their name <laughs> that, can't, that can't be good and they were they were pursuing a kind of um, monopoly capitalism that you know we didn't even really have um like a name for but they used sort of brutal tools and price fixing where companies would agree to just gouge consumers because there were no, they had no alternatives. Uh, the formation of cartels, um, buying competitors to, you know, very aggressively eliminate competition and consolidate wealth. Yeah. So the Sherman antitrust act of 1890 was, um, was the first in a whole set of, attempts by the United States government to to limit the power of megacorporations. Um the uh the Clayton Act followed right before World War 1 that then sort of because you know you limit uh you limit what corporations can do but they still have tremendous wealth and power and it's just like trying to eliminate a, a pan full of jello by putting your hands in it and squeezing it. You they're, know? they're
0: not going to stop. No. Like the, the thing that drives them is trying to increase market share. And if that means cartel forming or price fixing or whatever it is, they'll do it. They'll do it. And and it, all of this eventually
1: precipitated the formation of the Federal Trade Commission um, attempts in the early part of the century to really legislate how corporations could uh, could consolidate and become become mega that, uh, that 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 it, it was it was broadly seen not only to be antithetical to the free market spirit of capitalism and also very anti democratic and creating um creating a, a, an unjust and
0: un American world. But you're really angering a bunch of future. Coral polyps, who are all libertarians, we should have a content warning. Yeah, sorry, future polyp libertarians. So, sorry, you're not going to like all this talk.
1: <laughs> There's a lot of people that do not believe that the market is free and and encourages competition. I mean, I
0: understand. I understand the resistance to creating these kind of institutions and trade commissions and whatnot because, uh, it is just kind of an assumed part of modern capitalism is that, you know, the market should be free and that that's how problems get solved. And the second you say, actually, there should be a bunch of guys who decide just how free the market can be and when it's very freedom is actually leading to more trouble than good. Um, I mean, that's a very tricky thing to say, right? Like, oh, it's okay. We've got a bunch of experts and they'll, they'll make the call. Because you've you've given up the uh, well the freer the better argument when it comes to markets
1: yeah and and it's all part of um, the the overall question of what is the utility of government how are we better when we have unfettered freedom or are we better when we are marshaled in pursuit of us of a of a, a
0: greater idea you know are we idealistic basically or are sure. we what is um, the ideal? What is and what is a- the and ideal? And today the ideal might not be, well, one externality is it's going to get three degrees Celsius warmer and the free market is not addressing that and hasn't for centuries. And so that's an important enough ideal, but you got to decide what the ideals are. Not everyone agrees with that one.
1: And we and the public health crisis of the last couple of years right. is a similar thing where there there are tens of millions of people who believe that they should have – that their, their personal right to – live as as they choose uh supersedes the collective obligation to to um respect the science of public health so it's 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 ongoing and i think maybe even maybe now more than at any time in the last several hundred years is there such a dramatic divide between between people that believe that
0: regulation in some form at least is is a component of civilization it does seem that for the most part today, the trend is to not actually engage deeply with these issues at all, just to be uh, like me about the drinking straws, just to be, we all kind of assume that we, you know, we talk against, we talk about regulation as if we're against it until it inconveniences us until we're for it. Or in my case, I'm for all the regulations until the straws melt in my mouth and then I'm against them. You know, we, we just kind of reverse engineer the, whatever principle justifies our grievance when something doesn't go our way. There is a philosophy.
1: Uh, there are a thousand philosophies, economic philosophies, but the idea of there being a competition ideal, uh, a sense that that competition is healthy, economic competition, uh, you know, um, business competition is healthy and good. It promotes uh, it promotes progress. It promotes technological development, and it promotes wealth. And distributes wealth, but there is an there are ideal conditions. It is a thing that can be managed, and that that management is in the public interest, and that you can just as we try to apply social theory to uh, to programs, we try to apply science. You know, you can also try to apply economic philosophy to actual um, to manage competition in a way
0: where you're you, you seek an ideal state and in general everyone agrees on what that state is and what the what the best practices are
1: no absolutely not <laughs> okay. it is
0: uh, it is I assume no <laughs> it is a thing that that um, that's why economics is so valuable
1: yeah, yeah. and then ver, ver, <laughs> very very uh, very people of all stripes with with good intentions with with strong beliefs and with evidence to back it up can have completely different attitudes about it but uh, uh, Justice William O. Douglas described um, described the tendency for business to consolidate and become uh, become kind of imperial as the curse of bigness. <laughs> and there is in the United States uh, a sense that you can be too big, you can get too big, and at that point you are rivaling the power of government. Yes. and you and at that point it's in the it's in not in, it's not that the government has a competitive interest the government with you. is
0: a rival street gang
1: <laughs> it's going to shut, shut amazon down if
0: they get too uppity
1: but at the point that a company has that kind of power over the citizenry uh, but the companies are not, elected, not elected right yeah. and they're not governed by any laws other than their you know and and i think the way that corporate capitalism has evolved with the idea that the shareholder
0: profit is is the highest good. Right. There's no constitution that, that in which a company guarantees the principles that it stands by. It's shareholder value in the case
1: of American, you know, major American antitrust prosecutions over the course of the last century. You know, the, the most famous initial one was the breakup of standard oil. Standard oil had become this monolithic company that was controlling Petroleum and, and energy at a time when petroleum energy had become the had become a kind of public good,
0: the lifeblood of a lot of America. Right. It wasn't.
1: Worst. It wasn't like in 1805 when petroleum energy didn't exist, and it wasn't like in 1880 when petroleum energy was competing against all kinds of because you know we were developing engines, we were building things. The, these these um, Test cases. The well the the market for petroleum. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the early twentieth century, it had become a kind of universal. This was the direction that that power was taking, and Standard Oil held uh, across the board. They the, held all the power. They power. held all the power, and you see this a lot in the evolution of monopoly. What happens is not always that a company walks into a pre-existing diverse market and buys up all the competition or out-competes them, it's much more often that a new technology arrives that a company has developed and then that technology evolves to being the the
0: dominant and then ultimately universal technology. It's certainly the case in recent quasi-monopolies like Microsoft or Amazon. And They just and, got there first. You know, right now –
1: the uh for the last half a dozen years the argument that the internet has become a universal utility on the in the exact same scope that electricity and and power i mean electricity and water yeah. are and so at a certain point the state has an obligation to nationalize it to nationalize <laughs> it and to make to make the internet universally available
0: is it compatible with marxism that um i have to pay for my internet no and and weirdly
1: you know, one of the arguments, c- clearly the telecom and and cable companies don't want you to nationalize the internet. Uh, and they believe that, you know, that the, the your diversity of options, although we don't have very many here in Seattle. <laughs> many
0: neighborhoods only have
1: one. Um, that those options uh, increase your, increase the efficiency and increase the competition that makes our internet somehow better than other countries. But in, in fact, the United States has fallen out of the top 10 uh in in every metric uh i assume just mostly because of infrastructure investment well and that's the thing one of the things that monopoly one of the 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 anti-monopoly philosophies is that once you have a monopoly you have a lot less uh reason to invest in new technology to invest in in um new efficiencies that's what's going
0: to happen to staples you think they're going to keep coming up with new colors of paper clips once no. they've owned own Office Depot and Office Max?
1: Every single wheeled chair is just going to look like a fake Aeron chair <laughs> and you're not going to You know, you we, and I We might
0: already be there, I think.
1: <laughs> we sit here in white leather office chairs. And I picked those uh, when we were first building the the uh, I remember first building the bunker because I did not want us to be sitting in mesh-backed Aeron chairs with seven le- levers to give us all kinds of comfort. I wanted us to sit in sort of brutal, modernist leather office chairs.
0: To force our insights also to be brutal and modernist. That's right. That's right. There's no, we have no comfort here. We can't sit back on our laurels. What we have is style. I think people can hear that too. <laughs>
1: uh, at right now, the the nation, the form, formerly communist nation of Romania has uh, average internet speeds and cost uh,
0: far Far faster and far cheaper
1: than the United States
0: does. So if we had just shot our uh, dictator in the 90s, if we had just, you know, taken care of Reagan or Clinton.
1: Right. We also. If we just just sicked the miners on (laughs) on the hippies. Um, Some of the other big uh, monopolies that have been challenged by the federal government over the course of the 20th century, um, after the breakup of Standard Oil, uh, there was a, there was increasing monopolization happening in aluminum production. Interesting. As aluminum became more and more. Uh, sure. He who controls aluminum controls the world. That's right. And, and the, the, the consolidation of all aluminum under the Alcoa company, Alcoa also, you know, processing aluminum requires tremendous energy, like huge amounts of electricity, such that Alcoa got into the hydroelectric uh, business and, and, a lot of – you'll see a lot of aluminum processing happens very close to big hydroelectric projects. And they became – again, they started to operate at the level of a government agency because it was necessary and also
0: a, a byproduct of their consolidation. Alco was broken up by antitrust legislation. You mentioned the uh, standard oil breakup, and I, I think it's interesting that pretty much no post-boomer – listener might be aware of how many of today's oil and gas companies that they think of as independent companies were just part of a standard oil umbrella, right? Right. This is what happens. Like uh, uh, Exxon and Mobil and uh, BP and Texaco and Unicom, I mean... Sohio. Chevron. These were all, you know, Chevron was standard oil of California. Mobil was standard oil of New York. SO was standard oil. Of- you know, Since then, they've all re <laughs> so it didn't take... <laughs> Well, but they do, you know, they do nominally compete against each other. Uh, whereas,
1: yes, I'm just saying you
0: know, Exxon and Mobil, like two of the biggest baby standard oil companies, have since remerged. So,
1: oh, they merged again. Well, and that often yeah. happens because as the as competition changes the playing field, um, these companies that used to be under the same umbrella and then
0: become competitors, then see efficiencies in reconsolidating. I mean, they're, they're not wrong. Those are the same efficiencies that led to that monopoly doing well in the first place. And what happens is those, what what really changes is, is there an,
1: an activist antitrust uh, feeling within the nation? Because it's not just, it doesn't happen just as a result of an activist uh, Justice Congress Department. or Justice yeah. Department. Right. It's much more a question of, do the people... Is the is the conventional? What's wisdom, the vibe? What's the vibe?
0: It really is. That's, Be- that's the number one thing the Justice Department asks. What's the vibe hey, right what's now, the, bro? What's, you know, I'm thinking about Microsoft. What's the vibe? Because antitrust prosecutions take decades,
1: or or you know, they they start with one Justice Department, and and you really need continuity of purpose as you pursue these companies that are using all their resources to prevent the. Breakup. And Staples is always trying to outfox you at every turn. <laughs> They're like, but
0: what about you know well, we we spun off the uh, the staple company <laughs> okay, fine like we got rid of color printing. no, no, not
1: yet. well color printing is a, is another example um, in the mid 20th century, Kodak uh, grew to a point where they controlled 90% of all film cameras processing, uh, the production of film, a vertical, and then ultimately, when color photography was introduced, it was introduced by Kodak, and only Kodak understood how to process color film,
0: and they didn't share that technology because they got a Paul Simon song out of it. That's right, Kodachrome. They eventually owned all children. Bor- they owned all children owned uh, born to the baby boomers,
1: and so the government at a certain point said, "Look, you need to allow other companies to process." film you need to at at one point they said you cannot sell film under different names and make it seem like there's competition in the market. You have to, all your film has to be called Kodak film and other companies need to be able to enter the market selling competing mm. color film. So there are, there are lots of precedents. And I mean, at the time Kodak was one of the largest companies in America. Now Kodak of course didn't make the pivot to digital at,
0: They could have. They could have. They They were right there. They invented it themselves and decided. You know what? I think people will buy less film if we do this. That's right. Film is our game. And that
1: also, uh, that kind of decision making also plays in to the story I'm here to tell.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, how many minutes has it
1: been? (laughs) So uh, I think everybody is aware that the telephone was originally patented by uh, no less a, a person than Alexander Graham Bell.
0: I like how you're implying that he was already very famous for other things, like his trained dogs. Well, Alex- <laughs> no less a
1: person is the V. Alexander Graham Bell later went on to invent the telephone. Alexander Graham Bell, in fact, came from a uh, uh, like a distinguished family of elocutionists who had his father— That was a thing? Yeah, and uncle, and then Big he— Big money in the elocution game back then. Elocution being a, being um, not just a— I am going <laughs> to invent the telephone. <laughs> not not uh, just m- more important in Victorian times when people spoke properly, but also it was a particular interest in um, the— Relationship to educating and assimilating the deaf into society. He's into deaf education. I remember this. Deaf education. He's
0: a pioneer of deaf education.
1: He and his father both. His father patented a um, a a, uh, alphabet of the actual the physical the physicality of the throat and palate. Um, He developed an alphabet describing the different shapes of the tongue and mouth such that when Alexander was a young boy, he learned his father's alphabet and was able to speak aloud any language according to – if you could write the language in this political alphabet, he could read it and speak it aloud as you would read music and and play, even though he didn't know Romanian. In fact, his father took an interest – uh, once they moved to the Americas because they were Scottish, yeah, um, and they moved to America because two of Alexander's brothers died of tuberculosis, so they moved to Canada in order to seek to get, sunnier climes, better healthcare. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, to get you know out of the tubercular Sun- UK. Cleanse.
0: If you're from Scotland, <laughs> Canada looks so warm and inviting. <laughs> Uh, but he
1: uh, he actually started transcribing uh, Native American languages that had no written alphabet,
0: and his system was universally phonetic enough that it worked for that. Yeah, too.
1: his son then could speak Powhatan uh, because he could read it in this language. So he was a, you know a pioneer of preserving Native languages that you know now have very few native speakers. Interesting. And Alexander, and interestingly, Alexander had no middle name when he was born. He was just Alexander Bell, and as a as a teenager, like he petitioned his father to be able to have a middle name, and was and his dad at some point as a teenager gave him as a present the right to choose a middle name, and he chose
0: Graham. So even back then, teenagers were like, uh, "That's not my name anymore." Yeah, no, I want to be called Isabel. Call me uh,
1: Totoro. Call, yeah, call me Ishmael. He was. He invented that. So Alexander Graham Bell, and Alexander Graham Bell moved to Boston, uh, again, to work with the the deaf who were up until that time kind of marginalized in society. Not a lot of educational or professional options. He was credited by Helen Keller with playing a larger role in her kind of learning language and being, you know, being taught. Because Alexander Graham Bell's mother was deaf, Mm. lost her hearing, and he pioneered all these Uh, Different ways, like he would speak with his mouth on her forehead, and she
0: could feel the vibrations.
1: Yeah, he taught lip reading. You know, people that are part of a of like strong deaf positive culture now kind of look at him askance because he used all these techniques, you know, to try and bring deaf people into the spoken world. Word, right? Rather than,
0: but but Alexander Graham Bell also used sign. What did, a 19th century power couple that would have been. Alexander Graham Bell and Helen Keller. I know. People would have gone bananas. And That's like Elon Musk and Grimes. Alexander Graham
1: Bell did marry a deaf woman who he met in the course of his, uh, his project in educating in the fact, deaf. In fact,
0: that's why he got into it. He got into it to
1: me, women. He got into it for the chicks. Deaf education. Um, and all
0: of his work in telephony was— That's not way it's Telephony. Telephony? Telephony. Telephony. There once was an elephant who tried to use the telephone. Do you remember that? that they used to do it in elementary school?
1: They used to do oh, it in no. your elementary uh, no. school. Oh, no, I mean
0: an elephant who tried to use the telephone. Did I just go to some crazy school that had a better um, elephant telephone curriculum? Yeah, that sounds very Montessori.
1: I was re- <laughs> I, I was educated in the state schools where they just said, look, the Soviets could have beaten us to the moon if we hadn't really learned our math. If
0: you don't do your chin-ups. <laughs> If you have never heard of the elephant telephone thing, please write to Omnibus and complain uh, about my elephant telephone privilege.
1: Yeah, what would what would the elephony do if he didn't have telephony?
0: Yeah, that's that's kind of the joke. The yeah. guy the guy can't make the rhyme work. It's a nonsense poem. Well there it was. I got to the point of the joke and I wasn't even raised in that weird schooling. But it's certainly telephony.
1: Uh, Just well, like it's
0: telegraphy, you know,
1: if it, if it's, uh, the, the Marquess of Queensberry, then it's telephony. We'll let the free market decide <laughs> if people start
0: saying telephony. Well, guess what? Language is descriptive and we're out of luck.
1: Uh, but in 1876, he, he has, he's done the science, he's developed the telephone and he patents it. And, uh, and that is the beginning of The Bell Company, which named after Alexander Graham Bell. And what a nice
0: coincidence. Was it named in honor of him or was it actually his company? Bell, I
1: think, thought of his life's work primarily as education of the deaf. But he did recognize and his clan recognized that the telephone company was... That's where
0: the money was. That was where the money was. There's always money in the Bell Company.
1: And so it did become, you know, it was a family business, but it evolved very quickly. And it was you know, initially in competition with uh, with a lot of other sort of
0: companies. There, were, there were already, t- like, communications companies getting into the baby phone game? Yeah, primarily Western Union, which already okay. kind of dominated the, oh, all the telegraph, the telegraph stuff. companies, right? And They've got
1: you, a leg up. If you think about AT&T, the original... Um, the company that then became the company, uh, it stands for American Telephone and Telegraph. So the two were still... You know, they were side-by-side technology.
0: Well, this is fun. Do you know who the very first full-time employee of the Bell Company was? Who? It was Thomas Watson of Watson Come Here, I Want You fame. Oh, isn't that, that nice? It was Bell's little lab assistant buddy. The first full-time employee. Yeah. He had 499 shares. I'm sure he could... I'm sure his descendants could buy and sell all of us. Ken, you're a busy guy. I've got so many irons in the fire right now, John.
1: Uh, and it's... uh it's tough to nail you down, but you're always, you always look good. You always look slick. You know, you never show up here with leaves in your hair or sticks in your beard. Um, you're always, you're, do you always, want me to
0: tell you my secret? You're clean,
1: you're well appointed. Well, your secret is that you're, you're married to an incredible woman. To
0: make sure that you don't leave the house looking like a pile of laundry. And that I'm not a Robinson Crusoe-style castaway. That's, That's that true. really helps to, That's to keep the sticks and leaves out of my beard. Although you do talk to a beach ball, I've noticed. Sometimes. Um, one thing that has really helped me yeah. is Mac Weldon and its daily wear system. Mac Weldon has helped me, too, a lot. But the daily wear system is new. Can you explain it? Eh, it's just a, it's a selection of smart design clothes that they've made in performance fabrics they've built to work together uh-huh. so you buy some Mac Weldon items and you can pair anything for a great look any day of the week
1: so Mac Weldon has always positioned itself as a uh, as a line of men's basics and this really comports with uh, the idea we have about men that they often don't know exactly how to dress
0: and do not want to put any effort into it yeah and so this is a system
1: the daily wear system actually helps you it it, it's all figured out in advance yes
0: and i like that we can keep saying daily wear system as if it's some kind of new cult or belief system yeah the daily wear system you know i i I, or the dws nothing has changed my life more than the daily wear system the fabrics are really great the tailoring is nice i love everything of theirs i've ever
1: worn yep Yep, they've got uh, they've got cool fabrics like silver knit. Um, Ooh, they silver uh, knit. they all are very like uh, they, they're, e- they're highly packable. Like they're they're performance fabrics, so they're not bulky, but they do the job of a bulky fabric. Kind of like S- me,
0: <laughs> you do the job. That's what I've always said about you. Yeah. You do the job of a bulky fabric. I do. So get some, buy some time. Add some time back to your week with the simplicity of the Mac Weldon daily wear system. How do we order, John? For 20% off, that's 20%
1: off. That's $20 out of every 100 off. Visit MackWeldon.com slash Omnibus and enter
0: promo code, wait for it, Omnibus. That's MackWeldon.com slash Omnibus, promo code Omnibus, for 20% off your first order. Radically efficient Wardrobing.
1: As the the late 19th century evolved, his Alexander Graham Bell's patent on the phone expired in 1894. And almost immediately, there were thousands of companies entering into
0: the phone business. Because it was clear that this was like the internet boom. It was yeah. clear that this was the next big thing.
1: This was the thing. And, and every little town um,
0: kind of developed its own Little telephone. That's why there's so many. Yeah, because it's just like public transit or whatever. Pittsburgh, Cincinnati. I'm gonna control the phone board in Dayton. Right, Baltimore. Um, and
1: by kind of five years later, uh, the Bell Company, which the the AT and T was started initially as a subsidiary of Bell, that was focused on, um. Long distance telephony, uh, as as compared to kind of local, and then AT and T became, ended up being the parent company of uh, the corporate parent because Bell was headquartered in Boston, AT and T was headquartered in New York, and the tax laws. The, oh, I see. In New York, were more favorable to interstate
0: commerce, so Bell became a subsidiary of AT and which was a, a communications giant, right? And
1: became a became a New York based company. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Bell Bell and AT and had a had a kind of a, a, an aggressive CEO uh, by the name of Theodore Vale, and he went in an uh, his his corporate strategy was to buy up all these small telephone companies and consolidate them and this attracted because this was the heyday of antitrust 1910 it attracted the the attention of the Congress and in 1910 they made AT&T divest themselves because as part of buying up all this stuff they bought up a controlling interest in Western Union and the Congress thought hey we can't have a telephone and and the, uh, you know, the essential... That's too much power. <laughs> uh, telegraph. They can,
0: they can do telegraphs and phone calls. And they made at
1: and divest of Western Union.
0: Here, here's a question for you. Yeah. Uh, what year do you stop saying the Congress and start saying Congress?
1: Me? Yeah. Well, at what point do you stop saying the Ukraine and start saying Ukraine?
0: <laughs> <laughs> or do you say today, would you say the current sitting Congress is the Congress? The Congress. The Congress has announced... I say the Congress. I... Because to me, the Congress sounds very colonial era. Or it sounds, yeah, it does sound very like even, even World War II, I don't think I would say. The uh, Congress. Due to uh, developments in the Congress. I believe that uh, there are times when I think of the Congress as a, uh,
1: like an entity that almost has a, that that takes on a, a oh, personality. I see. I see. And I think at the further I get from uh, the time period, I'm able to see Congress as an as an entity with a shared set of values. It's a hive mind. Whereas the closer it is to my own time, I think of it as a divided body that is, you know, rife. I mean, you think when Congress makes a law, then you look back at it through time and you're like, Oh, Congress was in agreement that this was, the law of the land.
0: It's because we're not aware of the uh, factions and stuff, right? Yeah, and right. We have less knowledge. There were
1: just as many people arguing
0: against it as there were for it then. And also, it can't become a sentient hive mind today because of all those clowns in Congress. Lol. They don't have the They don't have the brains to do that. <laughs> am I right?
1: But Theodore Vail had a vision, which was and and it, and it expressed in a slogan. That said, that's, that's how you know it's a good vision. <laughs> if you can express your vision in a slogan, his slogan was "One Policy, One System, Universal Service." Wow! And now that's compatible with Marxism. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is, but it was. Uh, I think and this, you see this again in monopolies, where the um, the problem of six thousand phone companies all trying to. Do what you want a phone company to do, which is make it easy for you to make a phone call to reach from here anyone, to anyone. Yeah. Right. Um, it was much a much better system to have a controlling a controlling party that systematized the technology. Right. And AT and T built uh, built itself with kind of four major components. There was AT and which controlled long distance phone lines. There was a subsidiary company, Western Electric, which had been purchased by AT and T or by Bell in one of these large merger acquisitions. And Western Electric was the company
0: within the company that manufactured the technology of telephones, like the literal Pink Princess telephone. Yes, not the not the line or whatever. Or is it all of the above?
1: All of the above. Okay. They were all the hardware. You know, they're a hardware manufacturer, and they built all the big stuff that the company only used, but also all the consumer stuff.
0: Yeah, it was it was the phone company that would get you your phone. Is that how it worked? Even in our lifetimes, you wouldn't go to the store and get a new. I mean, you could. I remember going to the store to get a new phone. But. You remember it because you were a young person. But and, I feel and, like, like in my grandparents' house, they just had the Pink Princess phone that came from Ma Bell, right? This was part this was kind of one of the incredible things about the AT&T monopoly. They
1: controlled the phones such that you never owned your phone. Yeah. Part of the money that you paid to AT&T every month for your phone service included the phone and included the uh, all the phone lines within your house. It was all owned by AT&T. You were only leasing it. And eight, part of their monopoly, their anti-competitive practice, was they said, you cannot
0: use an aftermarket phone. There are no such thing. Uh, this is jumping ahead, but, like, so me being able to go to Sears and buy a cordless phone, does that post-date the breakup? It does. Wow. It was part of the part of the argument for the breakup of AT&T. It is unprecedented that you just have some—I guess to this day, like, I might have a Comcast router in my house. There's some— but I would have the option to opt out of that. Yeah. And this was there there was no aftermarket. And in fact, if you found a phone, let's
1: say you brought a phone from Romania or you had a you found some other phone. The Stasi could come get you. The only way they would allow it was that you would submit the phone to your local AT&T. They would rewire it to be compatible with their system, even though how you know it right. was compatible. And then they would lease it back to you. They would charge you for having rewired it, and then they would lease the phone back to you, so you were still back into a situation where they owned the phone, and and leased the
0: leased your right to it. Good business model for them. Difficult to see the advantages for the consumer. Uh, yeah, not no, a t- nobody suggested this with um, televisions, for example. Well, I mean, the cable box would be the only analog. The advantages were, and the, but what AT and T said
1: was that your phone never broke. I mean, if there was a problem with any of your equipment, including all the lines inside your house. It was AT and T's responsibility, and they sent somebody out right away and and fixed your gear. Now um, everything from the place where the cable enters your house to you know it's all it's all your responsibility to maintain, or,
0: or increasingly so. But I have to say, in uh, almost twenty years of homeownership, that has never come up once. It's it's, and rare. it's not just because I don't own a landline, although that's probably part of it. But you know, phones.
1: I mean, how many? Well, since the advent of the cell phone, how many have you had? Twenty-five, probably
0: a lot, right? and I haven't had a landline since two thousand two. How do the spam calls get through? Oh, wait, they just
1: get through. The other two parts of uh, of the you know the mega company AT and were Bell Labs, mm. which uh, was a technology laboratory, and Bell Labs was this was the part of AT and that in a way really changed the world. Within Bell Labs. Um, they invent touch phones. <laughs> they invented the transistor. Oh, right. They invented, in, well, you know, played a major role in the development of the laser, the photovoltaic uh, cell. Um, they, so it wasn't all
0: different shapes of receiver.
1: No, they developed Unix. Um, they developed C++. They developed radio astronomy i mean bell labs was an incredible resource and just nationally and then the fourth element of the at&t megalith was the bell operating companies which were the baby bells the small components cincinnati bell uh new york bell
0: and what they handle all the local calls. calls yeah okay and so- the- Switchboards at one point, probably.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, always switchboards. It was just, they became just an- automated. When you got rid of the the nice Betty Crocker-looking lady. So Bell survived multiple attempts, or at and survived multiple attempts throughout the decades to break them up. Um, in, it was 1913, the Kingsbury Commitment was what uh, forced them to sell Western Union. In
0: um you know, look at how it has a name like a surrender. Like, yeah, right. it really does sound like they they had to negotiate a peace in 1921. The Willis Graham Act.
1: Oh, so it should be said that during World War One, the phone network was nationalized as a part of the war effort. But after the war, it returned to private mm. hands, and AT and T again, you know, just
0: just assumed control over the whole system. That's an interesting arrangement. That seems yep. unprecedented. For an industry to be, I mean, I guess I can see during World War II, Roosevelt being like, we're going to build battleships and here's what we're going to do with the steel, but just to take over all the phone lines. Well, it's very interesting that they didn't just keep the phone lines.
1: That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. In a lot of the nations of the world, the phone company is the government or is, you know, run by the government as a public utility. And why they would have, how they would have been lobbied. How the Congress would have been lobbied to And by lobby you mean paid. Yeah, to relinquish control <laughs> over this over this massive grid. To a massive company. To a massive, basically competitor to the government. It's pretty interesting. In thirty-four, the FCC uh arrived to regulate like what the, ATT could charge. The newly founded FCC. Mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. And in nineteen fifty-six there was th- this was a time of a lot of pursuit of uh antitrust legislation. The the um, the government got a consent decree with AT and T that limited their entry into the world of computers, which AT and T was because of Bell Labs. They were very interested in developing their computer side, and the government jumped in as and computers were just part of this consent decree. But it, they were trying very hard to limit um, AT and T's you know octopus grab, yeah. right? Um, and it wasn't until the sixties that there started to be, um, there started to be pressure in the market, um, from companies that wanted to supply, uh, wanted to sell phones, but also wanted to compete in long distance. And AT&T owned all the lines and it was kind of like the, um, kind of like the railroads at a certain point, the government had to intervene in the railroads and say, railroads cannot themselves limit what is transported by railroad, right? I mean, the, it, it's it's net neutrality, but for tracks. It's net neutrality, but for tracks. The idea at a certain point that, ra- you know, a railroad owner could say, I don't agree with paper straws.
0: I don't agree yeah. with pornography. Or even I own a pork bellies company and I'm not going to let my competitors send pork to... Dallas,
1: right. So the so Congress had to intervene and say there's fair use, there's net neutrality in railroads, and th- it started to be clear that there needed to be the same kind of net neutrality.
0: Bell can't say, hey, you can't talk about um, what you're going to do this summer on our phone lines.
1: Not only that, but if you're a if you want to sell phones, if you want to be part of, if you want to invent the car phone or whatever, you're you you need to be able to use this
0: you know, this monopolistic set of phone lines. But it would be much funnier if they tried to regulate different kinds of speech. Yeah, you They're like, hey, you can talk on the phone lines, but you don't talk about communism. Well, you can't sing a lullaby on the phones. That's that's an abomination. Here's a list of words you cannot say on AT&T telephones.
1: And Bell, you know, AT&T didn't, didn't want this, just as we see in our tech companies today. They try to slow down the competition. They try to make it difficult to link up with the technology and by the mid by the late sixties government understood that they needed to intervene but actually there were also civil suits being filed anti-competitive civil suits being filed by by would-be competitors yeah would-be competitors like mci and sprint uh these these tiny little um scrappy little companies at this
0: point um even though the even though Corporately, it's officially AT&T. The nickname is still Ma Bell. We think of it as a, as a Bell umbrella. The, e- even mother, though,
1: the mother of all Bells. Even though it's
0: only subsidiaries that are called Bell, colloquially people are still referring to this as the Bell Telephone Company. It's the Bell system. The Bell system. The Bell system. The right. Bell system. I always th- I associate that with phone books. Yeah. Remember how big phone books would have the the Ma Bell logo on them? Well, phone books actually,
1: and this is another thing, it's hard for uh, people who didn't use them to understand, but phone books were a major, major source of revenue for the Bell system because the yellow pages were where... Companies would pay to advertise. Yeah, and it's it's how you,
0: what you use to find things. Like, I need a plumber. You'd flip to... It basically replaced the World Wide Web for about five or six things you do a day. The World Wide Web replaced it. No, for, it would replace the World Wide Web in your oh, <laughs> in, in your, your conception time. of the world. Yeah. And
1: this was true until the 2000s. Yes. I mean, I kept a pay, I kept a yellow pages
0: in the trunk of my car. When did you When did you own your last? I uh, they were still bringing phone books to my door in the uh, probably around 2010. I would say is the last time somebody tried to drop off a phone book at my door.
1: I got phone books until about 2014. And at, a, at the point at which the phone books arrived and I immediately walked them over to the uh, recycling? recycling, there was actually a movement here in Seattle and it might have even resulted
0: in legislation. I think it did. Where they, uh, they forced the phone companies to stop sending phone, phone They phone were books. getting sh- thinner and thinner in the sad way that newspapers were at the yeah, same time. Because people weren't paying for the Companies ad. wouldn't pay a big, you know, cause you'd have to pay thousands of dollars to, put, to give your muffler shop nice big phone book placement. Because if not, they were going to go to Jerry's mufflers. So phone books were a big part of the Bell system, a b- big part of the enterprise. And we'll
1: see in a second how that uh, that kind of the, the phone book-centric idea of the company uh, played a role in its in its breakup. And the
0: phone book was really your full guide to geography. It wasn't just who are you going to call. It was literally like I need to find a store that, you know, repairs vacuum cleaners or right. a store that sells… Um, uh, you know, vintage whatever. You know, you the first place you would look would be in the phone your phone book, book. which was yeah. sitting in a room in your house and was kind of your encyclopedia to the outside world, or at least of your city.
1: Well, do you remember when having more than one phone book was kind of a sign of wealth and prestige? Like, oh, well, that, that's the kitchen
0: yellow pages. Let's use the upstairs yellow pages. I still get annoyed when I see, when people in movies rip out a page in a phone oh, book. Oh, I know. Because... That's a public utility. So. I know that's really awful. <laughs> Come on, Marty McFly. Yeah. Um.
1: So by the mid '70s, the federal government and the and MCI and these other companies were suing AT and in, in separate ways. One as federal antitrust legislation; the other for civil damages. And by the late or by the late seventies, early eighties, it was clear to AT and T that they they could not win an antitrust suit. They were obviously just public opinion had turned against them. Yeah, and, and the were, legal
0: merits of the case were there
1: was no way that they could. They're a get very by clear this. monopoly. And so AT and T corporate surveyed their empire, and they said they offered the opportunity to the government uh, that they would voluntarily kind of. Um, break up the company. And their proposal was that the uh the the small local bells be kind of consolidated into seven groups that were regional.
0: Yeah.
1: And that they because, you know, the local telephone didn't seem like the big profit center for AT&T, they said we'd like to keep long distance and we'd like to keep Bell Labs and so, so we
0: can make more space lasers. Western
1: Electric, manufacturing all this technology, and the phone book, the yellow pages. These are the, this is like the-, the This was
0: our idea to make the pages yellow. You, you, you yeah. cannot right. squash
1: innovation of that kind. <laughs> we invented the laser and, and pages that are and yellow. And yellow paper. And the baby bells will then, you know,
0: we'll divest ourselves of those and they will go off and become- and it seems Different like a ploy comics. because, again, they're keeping they're keeping the real value, right? And in the in the, ne- the the negotiations
1: around it, one of the things the government said was, "Okay, we agree to that plan, but you can't keep the yellow pages."
0: <laughs> they forced them. <laughs> You're going to let our fingers do
1: the walk-in, yeah. Mister. They forced them to to get out of the yellow pages business. But immediately, the 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 baby bells were formed, and the the baby bells there were there were famously seven of them
0: and was this in practice um actually a i mean was it full independence or mm-hmm. did the did the mothership still have any kind of uh, kind of an informal web of control over these were they they were not acting like subsidiaries anymore
1: no they were not subsidiaries they were their own companies um and the seven were um the the bell companies of illinois indiana michigan ohio and wisconsin it's a catchy name Stayed, uh, stayed, or, or broke off together as a kind of regional company called Mm Ameritech. Um, the Atlantic coast, um, companies were, or the bells of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, DC, Maryland, West Virginia, and Virginia all became bell Atlantic. And then bell South was as, as it sounds, bell South and, uh, New York Nex or NYNEX was New York and New England. Pacific Telesis was uh, Nevada and, you know, Pac Bell, California. Okay. And then Southwestern Bell, which was kind of Midwest, Southwest. And then the one that we know the best, US West. That was,
0: oh yeah, that was what it became here in the Northwest.
1: Yeah, US West, which, which was Northwestern Bell, Pac. Northwest Bell, Mountain Bell, and weirdly, Malheur Bell, representing rural southeastern Oregon, its own kind of mini bell that was... Because they speak a lot of French there. They do. And Malheur.
0: Remember when all the Cajuns wound up in I was just Eastern down Oregon? there,
1: and I never actually... That was where Cliven Bundy... Uh, yeah,
0: did you guys you know, hang out? Yeah, I had no...
1: I, I never really figured out
0: how it's pronounced. Malheur? What does Malheur even mean? Like um, Bad bad air? bad, Bad health? When we drive across the river, I always ask this. I think it just means, like, sadness or something. Yeah, right. It's a bummer. It's a bummer, it's, bummer it's, river. It's And it's bummer desert. Bummer National Wilderness Area. But
1: what changed almost immediately was that it turned out that a lot of these, uh, you know, Western Electric, AT&T, and the local bells were all... S- sort of self or they, they were internally subsidizing one another like western electric seemed like it was going to be a major powerhouse it had been a hundred years before you know a, a a manufacturing a technology manufacturing company those didn't get spun off or they did they did oh, okay. well no i'm sorry they were part of at&t yeah They're, they were part of what at&t perceived to be their profit center but it turned out that without the baby bells, without the, the subsidizing uh, income of being f- everyone in the country being forced to use their telephone, they, they couldn't stand on their own. They weren't they were not profitable to AT and T as a manufacturing center, um, and the um, long distance. It turned out that long distance rates were kept artificially low because local telephone rates. We're kind of subsidizing them, you know, they're artificially high. And so all of a sudden, you know, you had a choice in long distance, uh, options, different companies, MCI. Sprint. uh, Uh, Sprint. And so. AT&T's long-distance lines, which
0: they had staked their fortune on, were no longer profitable. Because they'd been charging inflated prices for decades, the, the anti-monopolistic argument held here. Right. And the
1: baby bells, it turned out, were profitable because charging phone rates and more and more, and as the internet, you know, as the as the early sort of dial-up internet started to happen, mm-hmm. all of that was going mm-hmm. through... More hours on your local phone Yeah, line. local phones. AT&T really thought their future in the early eighties was in personal computing. And it was one of the things that they negotiated with the government that, that consent decree from the fifties was no longer applicable and they were going to get into computers. They were going to sell PCs. They were going to sell PCs and because they, they had built Unix, Unix was their, their product at Bell labs. And so they came out in this big, you know, crash competition with a, uh, with uh, IBM, the AT&T computer personal computer line, which was a total bust. Nobody liked it,
0: and I cannot picture a AT and T personal computer. No, uh, and if you look them up, you still can't. It's interesting. The Bell and IBM both had um, uh, early, uh, early chairman founder types named Thomas Watson.
1: There it is, but different Thomas Watson. Different Thomas Watsons. Well, it was, it was. You know, back then there were only seventeen surnames okay. and only five uh, first names. So it was only a
0: total eighty five different things that Americans That's could right. be named. The thing that I remember that was most visible to me as a non-phone bill paying uh, a child at the time of the Ma Bell breakup is that phone booths no longer had the little yel- chunky yellow and black Ma Bell logo on them. Phone booths, you know, now were U.S. West or or whatever, possibly even long distance providers. Did they did they have phone booths? I can't remember. Well, what what ended up happening was that um, the little bells
1: became a lot of them successful companies uh, first among them was Bell South the southeastern Bell started to you know it was a big income generator and over the course of um, the next couple of decades became a big big player in the phone world and a lot of these other companies started to the the smaller bells started to merge. Um, like NYNEX, the New York Nex and Bell Atlantic ended up merging along the way. And in the year 2000- There were no provisions against this in the- No, because, in the it, government. because it was all very different. The US government was trying to control who had the freaking phone book. Yeah. Um, so by the time local telephony entered, you know, the the, the way we use telephones- Changed a lot. I mean, in, in did fact, the
0: pronunciation change? In fact, to telephony. To, te, telephony.
1: Yeah, that's, no, that was always how they said it <laughs> since the very beginning. Um, you, you know, in the in the sixties and seventies, a lot of the major TV networks uh, sent their uh, their programs over AT and T lines. Oh, interesting. And, and at this point, now all of a sudden, you've got satellite communications and microwave technology. That um, so a lot of the and and the government used to use AT and T. And now they had their own systems, you know, the, the military. So a lot of the business went away and the small bells were still were still
0: there collecting that local income. There's, yeah, they're still like, taking millions of local calls a day.
1: Bell South ended up buying ATT.
0: Wow. In two thousand six, and it changed its name to ATT. That's like when you have your um it's like when your parents get elderly and have to move in with you. It's exactly right. So the at and that we know today is— It's just Bell South. It's
1: a—I mean, the name—Bell South was like, that's a better name, but it's, it has very little connection to at and the, the company that dominated the 20th century. Um, the Northeast telephone companies, Bell Atlantic and Ninex, and combined to form no less a company than
0: Verizon— the main competitor of of AT and T in the cell phone market,
1: uh, US West did a nice little uh, jump. They
0: they started calling themselves Quest, which you surely recall. Uh, they sponsored the Seahawks stadium, for Quest a while. Field, and then they became CenturyLink. Currently, the Seahawks naming sponsor,
1: and all of those now are under the uh, the rubric of Lumen. Oh, which yeah. is
0: a company I've never heard Far, of. Sorry, it. now it's Lumenfield. Sorry, I missed this <laughs> stuff. It. it was Questfield, then it was CenturyLink, then it was Lumenfield. Lumenfield. They increasingly uh, sound like electric cars.
1: Yeah, right. They're just like further and further away from the Bell, which is just like every phone had a bell. It just made so much sense. And that's why Alexander Graham Bell put a bell
0: in there. If his name had been Buzzer, like phones would have made a different noise. What if his name had been Lucent? <laughs> he would have sold the naming rights to the, <laughs> to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Bell
1: Labs, in all of its glory, you know, eventually
0: got stopped inventing mice and lasers. Yeah,
1: got ripped apart and just and now is owned by Nokia as some sort of small like Nokia Bell, some little corner of their world. So in the end, the breakup of uh, AT and T produced in the course of twenty five years. Just a reconsolidation of all the phone companies into just a couple of phone companies. I guess there's a handful now. That's better than one. A handful, better than one. But there, there was an argument made that Bell Labs had um, ha- was one of the the inventors of high speed internet. What they were part of the of a movement. They were very excited about high speed internet, and once it was. Di- divided into baby bells none of the baby bells really were invested in uh in maintaining the infrastructure and in developing new technology you know they were sitting in their yeah. local nest and and profiting and so there there is an argument that breaking up AT&T slowed the uh, adoption of... We'd all be in space
0: stations right now right. if we had just let Bell Labs control the, the 21st century. Yeah, if they had just had free reign to build this the infrastructure. Well, I mean, that's not hypothetical. That's an argument we continue to hear today. I heard Jeff Bezos give a talk on space not long ago, and that was essentially, explicitly what he said, is, you know, before there could be commercial air travel, there had to be crazy barnstormers like me just kind of doing these crazy ego stunts, bankrolled by their own... Fat wallet, and uh, you know every new era has to start with these. Um, I guess in his implication, fat cat capitalists with with money to throw around, and that's how you get space lasers. And if you don't, you'll never get your space lasers. So don't break up Amazon, please. That is
1: absolutely of the moment. This is a show ripped from the headlines because, and not just because of the Staples <laughs> Office Depot drama. We have entered into an era where there is a lot more interest in activist antitrust legislation, and and it's coming not from – and in a way, it's very bipartisan because the Republican argument or the conservative argument that the consumer is losing out in the consolidation of Apple iTunes store and uh, Google's control of Android phone, Facebook's control over – all of social over media over your grandparents yeah and and you know and facebook went through a period where they just bought every competitor instagram um and uh and you know arguably microsoft but also amazon's control over retail uh, there the con- the conservative argument being that this is bad for the consumer and the leftist argument that this is creating a uh, a world of wealth consolidation and and the you know of there's now a very activist movement to try and create a better world by uh, instituting new antitrust legislation so um, and I think a lot of the the divide politically is there are plenty of people on the on the conservative side that believe the legislation is already there and what we need to do is enforce it and the left of course wants new uh, more uh, more custom legislation to address sure. these uh, the the actual Reality on
0: the ground, but both parties are taking fat donations from from interested uh, corporations, right? So. And there, and and at the
1: di- at the district court level, there's been uh, a lot of this antitrust uh, the, the the attempts at this antitrust legislation have been shut down by district court. I mean, uh, one district court judge, uh, Boasberg, just like just laughingly shot this stuff down because he said no one had actually proved that the that there was monopoly in in, in that any one of these four companies these major companies yeah. actually effectively had a monopoly that he i could be searching with bing yeah right there's ask jeeves there is uh, there are two competing sides and one of them says there are comp- competing philosophies one of them says look there's all the evidence in the world that all of these companies are competing with each other and competing with startups that are, you know, across the, across the ground. And then, of course, there's plenty of evidence that these are massive companies that are sucking up resources, squashing, uh, squashing innovation, and, um,
0: you know, and creating an, an unequal world. This is why we can't tax billionaires. They will stop shooting themselves into space if we break up their monopolies.
1: Uh, I guess one of the things that's very interesting is that the FCC under Ajit Pai had very little interest in in regulating monopoly, and the U.S. That's government, a the the government itself is, um, has a still a very laissez-faire attitude about about business, and it's only kind of this this brand new social movement yeah. toward.
0: Breaking up monopoly—that's and, even—and that stuff increasingly is not bubbling up into legislation. So, very, if, very popular stuff can't get passed if the the uh, you know if the lobbyists are uh, are doing their job. Well, that's where
1: that's why the uh, the squad is gonna is gonna be the thing that uh,
0: that futurelings look back on this era and go the Congress. Well, look, this is all very ominous, but I want to end with some good news. Do you want some good news for you, John? Lay it on me. Webster says. Telephony and telephony are both permitted. <coughs> Boom! Score. And that concludes the mobel Breakup. Entry 744.LK1214. Certificate number 22481. In the Omnibus. Uh, futurelings, uh, before these uh, social media monopolies were broken up, you, we could be found at Omnibus Project on many or all of them. I'm at Ken Jennings. You can find John at John Roderick, um, mostly archived at the moment, except for his Patreon. You could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Get out your phone book and and jot that number down. Jot down our address as well, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I have a few... Somewhere here I have... Here's something we got in the mail. I haven't opened it. What is it? It's to the Omnibus Podcast Attention, J Lighthouse Roderick. What? I assume that's you. Of the two of us, it seems more likely it's me. It's oh, the... because I sometimes talk about my seven sided lighthouse made of dreams. But or Lighthouse is your middle name. While I'm while I'm opening this, you also got a birthday card. Oh from Julie. Thanks, Julie. She says, uh I'm sorry that uh, when she sent you that she had not let listen to the not yet listened to the Bridie Murphy episode where you indicate you did not want listeners wishing you a happy birthday. Huh. So she has sent you a non-birthday card with um, six dollars in it by way of apology. Oh, how wonderful! You're getting, uh, getting un birthday cards. I now. got a six dollar uh, six dollar present. I need to start running that kind of a scam. Yeah, if you have ever sent me something, remember you better follow it up with cash, or <laughs> or else I get super mad. If every futureling sent.
1: Me six dollars. Uh, maybe I'd be up there. Uh, I'd be able to to join Ken at those fancy balls he attends. I don't attend fancy balls, but you could be up in space with William
0: Shatner. You're going to Yola Tango tonight. What do you mean you don't? You know that is fancy a fancy balls. ball. But uh, you know how I got into that ball. Uh, my wife bought two tickets. Yeah. Okay, I can't open this thing to Jay Lighthouse Roderick, so the world may never know. Come on, do it. You've Nor got. You, you can do it. This what, has already been a very long episode, so why not just keep it, go- keep it going, Gleeplop? What else is usually in the outro? Oh, you, the best way to support the Omnibus. I mean, you can tell your friends how much you enjoy the program. You can um, <laughs> leave a good review on, on uh, Apple or Google or whatever one of our monopolies are. Um, but support the show on patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, that's what keeps it going. Here's a book by a native son of your Pacific Northwest. It's based partly on his experiences on a lightship. Oh. So the Scott is from Austin, uh, who sent you this, but his grandfather, Archie, was born in Port Ludlow and retired to Squim. He spelled Squim without the silent E, but. Oh, dear. Yeah, isn't right. that
1: where your parents live?
0: It is, mm. but they spell it correctly. Um, <laughs> this is a book called Lightship, 1934, Archie Bins, and I believe it's a novel fictionalizing. His experiences on a light ship. Now am I supposed to know what a lightship is? It's a lighthouse, but it's it floats. That's right.
1: In fact, if you go down to Lake Union to the Museum of History and Industry, there are uh there's more than one uh, retired light ship, and they are. They're just a they're a
0: uh, lighthouse that that floats where you couldn't build a lighthouse. Well that seems like it's unfortunate because you know, the thing about a lighthouse is it's guaranteed to stay on the rocks, it's lighting up. A lightship could float around and there, thereby mislead the observer
1: yeah, I guess you you keep the motors at idle <laughs> uh, yeah this book has a lot of very attractive foxing in the pages and it was we given as foxing, a, it was we, folks. given to Helen Knaden by Dana Hall in 1934. Wow that was the year it came out and here's a st- here's a stamp on the inside gift of the people of the United States through the Victory Book campaign to the
0: Armed Forces and Merchant Marine. So there was a campaign to um, stock up our our navy and merchant marine ships by giving them giving them naval bestsellers like like light And this is uh, this uh, this version in September of thirty four is already the third printing. This book was quite popular. Thank you, Scott. We also got this postcard from uh, Dawn on a fifty three city tour. They're visiting all forty eight state capitals. Wow, that is quite an undertaking in the lower forty eight. This really is, and you know, this here's the kind of thing you only discover when you're on that kind of bizarre and pointless road trip. We've discovered Helena, in Montana, and Pierre, South Dakota's state capitals are very similar in layout. And I wonder how many other capitals will have the same characteristics. I hope Dawn continues to update us on her journey through the, here's a North Dakota postcard. Yeah, Helena and Pierre are very similar. and um... I don't know if she means the city or the dome, I mean, or the building. She spelled it with an O, but but hard to say.
1: Well, it's one of the things that makes uh, the Ohio State Capitol in Columbus so interesting. Um, just like the Ohio State flag, it's not like other flags. It's triangular. The Ohio State Capitol, not like other capitals. There's no
0: dome. What? Yeah. It's flat roofed. Isn't that true of the? Is it Louisiana? I'm trying to picture. Seems right. Yeah, Louisiana just looks like the L.A. Um, uh, City the Hall building. Oh, the no, City <laughs> Hall. <not> the <laughs> no, you know, one of those big uh, deco skyscrapers of that time. Uh, yeah, the Louisiana State Capitol, probably the highest point in the state of Louisiana, also does not have a dome. It has a tower instead.
1: The Ohio State House looks like a building that should have a dome. It's got the— Oh, they just forgot like, it. <laughs> it looks like the U.S. Capitol. It looks like
0: the U.S. Capitol during the Civil War, right, when yeah. they're working on the dome. Yeah, before they put the dome in there. Here, Ohio. Just build a dome. I think there might be a tiny dome,
1: but there's not like a, a boob dome.
0: Honey, I shrunk the dome. Uh, you can also, so thank you for sending us those artifacts. Um, you can find your fellow listeners by searching for the Futurelings links on uh, Facebook or Reddit, for example, or on discord, um, but do whatever it takes to add to your enjoyment of the show. Cause you don't just want, you don't just want an hour and a half of us talking about um, consent decrees.
1: <laughs> My favorite topic. You've got to make it a
0: parasocial relationship.
1: <laughs> consent decrees. You know, the Seattle Police Department consent decree just, uh, like, what, not expired, but they just renegotiated. They it somehow, yeah. It's gonna no, going to keep going. No, no, I think the opposite. Oh, they got out of it? I think so, somehow. I'm sure they're not doing bad things anymore, so it's are no, fine. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the honor.